Welcome to the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and then put into practice. My name is Gwen DeSelm, and I am your host for these times together. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. One of the things you've heard me promise in each episode of this podcast is that we would teach the Bible in ways that everyday people like you and me could understand and then actually be able to put it into practice in our lives. I think today's episode is a great example of that because we're going to cover a section of scripture that is bizarre and confusing and it would be all too easy to just read through it and think, I have no idea what that means, let alone what to do with it in my life. But Dave does a remarkable job of explaining what's happening in this text in the book of Revelation and making it imminently personal and practical. So let's join Dave now for When the Trumpets Sound. We're engaged in a exciting study and a quite exacting study in this wonderful book in the New Testament, but it's been an adventure to say the least. This morning is going to be probably one of the high level points of adventure because get this, this morning we're going to be reading about a star named Wormwood, a talking eagle, some locusts that seem straight out of a Stephen King novel. In fact, look at chapter 9, Just this is just a taste of this section of scripture here. Nine, look at three to ten and nine for these locusts that are really wild, okay? Uh, nine, three. Out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They've not been given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in the tails they had the power to torment people for five months. That's just the scorpions. We're also going to see the Apostle John eating a scroll, and in the end we're going to see two witnesses who literally spit fire. Now you look at all that, and there's got to be at least a few people here who have to really be wondering, what was John smoking? I mean, really. You look at this, and it seems like something out of Timothy Leary's journal. It's a crazy thing. You read this kind of stuff, and the average reader has to say, if I would write this kind of stuff, nobody would take me seriously, huh? Nobody would take me seriously. How did this stuff make it into the Bible, for crying out loud? And the answer to that question, I think, uh, is that we need to take just a pause and review something I mentioned to you in greater detail last January. And this is going to be a good reminder for you, not only for the book of Revelation, but for your Bible study in general. And it's this. 
In order to rightly understand the scriptures, you need to keep in mind what part of the scriptures you're reading. You must keep in mind the type of literature that you're reading in the Bible as you're reading the Bible. For example, you must ask yourself, in order to understand what the writer meant and how to apply it accurately to your life, am I reading an Old Testament historical narrative? Is this history or a gospel account? Is this history or is it poetry like the Psalms? You must interpret those differently. Am I reading a series of truisms out of Proverbs, or am I reading non-negotiable doctrine out of one of the Pauline epistles? You must know what kind of writing you're reading in order to understand what the author meant and what it means for you. Now, the technical term for this is genre, G-E-N-R-E, genre analysis it's called. And that sounds pretty technical to many of you out there, but the fact of the matter is we do this all the time. For example, pretend with me for a moment that you are a wrestler for the World Wrestling Federation. This is going to work. Hang with me. This will work. You're a wrestler for the WWF, and your opponent says, I'm going to kill you. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Should you take that literal, or should you take that figurative? Which is it? Figurative, right? It's figurative. Why? Because the genre of the WWF is to use what is called the language of hyperbole, which is overstatement. By understanding the genre, you know not to take that literal. However, if uh, you're a character in The Godfather and Don Corleone says to you, I am going to kill you, should you take that literal or figurative? Literal. Literal, right. right. In fact, in that genre, they often use another type of, of uh, literature uh, usage called uh, understatement. All right, They'll use understatement there. For example, they may say, tonight you're going to sleep with the fishes. I want to ask you a question. Does that mean that you're going to have a good night's sleep with Charlie the Tuna? No, it doesn't. It means that you're going to be wearing cement overshoes, right? You're going to be sleeping with the fishes, all right? By understanding the genre, you can understand better, okay? The point is this. You need to understand that when you study the Bible because there are informal rules that, co that cover biblical thought. And the thing is, an awful lot of foolishness has, has resulted from people not understanding the genre. And you'll hear about it all the time. People who, quote, I use the Bible for some obnoxious behavior. I heard about this one some time back, about this one fella who really had a shine, taken a shine to a gal, and he'd been reading in Joshua about the fall of Jericho, and, and he really sensed the Spirit of God was calling him to marry this woman, who, by the way, didn't have a clue. And so what he did was he decided to walk around her seven times and shout, so that the walls of her heart would fall down. And he did it. He walked around this gal seven times and said, Praise God! And she ran. And he couldn't understand because I, I, I applied Scripture. What I did was scriptural. Didn't they walk around Jericho seven times and shout, and didn't walls fall down? By not understanding genre... He totally misinterpreted the Bible. He used a historical account for a contemporary behavior, and he messed it all up. And that's what's so important to understand here. Now, my point is this. The book of Revelation uses a genre called apocalyptic literature. Now, this type of genre was quite familiar back in John's day. It is highly symbolic literature that uses great imagery to describe indescribable truths. 
they would have been very familiar with this. Now, Revelation is the only book in the whole New Testament that contains this genre of literature. The point is this. You must understand that this is apocalyptic literature, highly symbolic with great imagery, if you ever hope to make heads or tails of it, or else you'll misapply it. Does that mean we are not to take Revelation literally? The answer is, it depends. Some of it is very literal. Other parts of it are highly symbolic, and of course the great debate is in that area in between. This morning, having said that by way of introduction, we're going to walk through, believe it or not, chapters 8 through 11, four chapters. And obviously I'm going to be hydroplaning through this thing here. Of all, the, of all the teachings in this whole series, I'm going to cover more ground this morning than any other single time. I simply have to, uh, in order for us to get through this thing. Throughout these weeks, I've tried to give you my best shot at the last seven-year period of time here, the book of Revelation seems to talk about. It's divided into two portions. The, the first portion called the beginning of sorrows, during which the Antichrist begins to take over. We talked all about that. The midpoint is when he sets up an idol and desires to be uh, worshipped. Following after that becomes the great tribulation, a time when believers will face the tough issue, will I bow my knee to the Antichrist or not? Partway through that last three and a half years, we aren't told when, there will be a great sign in the sky, and then there will be the rapture of the church that takes place there. This is a pre-wrath view that I've tried to explain to you, which I found, I think, to be quite intriguing. Following the rapture of the church, there now comes the pouring out of God's wrath on the earth before the final climactic day when Jesus will set foot on the planet one more time, literally and gloriously. And this time of God's wrath, we don't know when it starts because we don't know when the rapture takes place. But it appears to me this is going to be a highly compact time that we're going to see one after another these judgments pouring out upon the earth. The judgments we're going to be seeing today are called the trumpet judgments, all right? And uh, it comes together like this. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Back in chapter 5, we saw Jesus taking a, a scroll. And there were seven seals on that scroll. That scroll represented the title deed to planet Earth. And as those seals, one by one, were broken, it would open up God's final climactic purposes, whereby he would once more take control of this planet. That was in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we saw the breaking of the first six seals, climaxing in the sixth seal, which was the great cosmic event around the rapture of the church. Now we come to chapter 8, which is the breaking of the seventh seal. The interesting thing is, when the seventh seal is broken, nothing happens. Really, the seventh seal kicks in the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal, per se, does not trigger anything more than the onset of the seven trumpets. Does that make sense? Now, with that, we now come here to chapter 8. And notice what happens there. In verse 1, there was silence in heaven about a half an hour. Things are going to get real hairy now. And it's almost as if heaven goes quiet because of the severity of what's about to happen. God is about to pour out his judgment on a civilization that has chosen to bow the knee to Antichrist instead of his son. And what's about to happen has never happened before in its intensity and severity. And heaven, the angelic 
beings almost just, they're just numb to silence because this is going to be so horrific. That's what the silence is all about here, okay? And we could spend we could spend weeks going over the various images we have here in these chapters, but what I'd like to do is to take four of the images, one from each chapter, and see if we can get some practical application out of them. Verses 2 to 4 in chapter 8. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Talks about the prayers of the saints. Saints had been praying, and something happens because the saints had been praying. Hold a finger here and go back to chapter 6, and you'll, you'll see those prayers. Back in chapter 6, look what it says in verses 9 and following. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge your inhabit the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They were told in verse 11 to wait just a bit longer until their number was fulfilled. Chapter 8 seems to be the answer to that prayer in chapter 6. How long, O oh God, before you pour out your judgment? How long before we're vindicated? When will the time be when finally evil men will see the evilness of their ways? They've mocked God for so long. They killed the saints. How long, O oh God? Chapter 8 seems to be the answer to that how long prayer. And the remarkable thing to me is how it is those prayers that literally stop things in heaven. It's an amazing thing. Usually we think of events on earth being interrupted by events in heaven. Here, as I read through chapter 8, I was struck by the fact that the heavenly worship that we've been studying in chapters 4 and 5 is going on, and everything stops so the prayers of God's people can be answered. Do you see that? Everything stops so that God's people's prayers can be heard and answered. And there's a huge point being made here that's one of the four that I want you to see this morning. And it's this, friends. Your prayers matter. As inadequate as they may seem, your prayers make a big difference because what happens next in chapter 8 happens in response to the prayers of God's people. Verse 5 talks about this censer filled with those prayers being hurled down. George Ladd puts it this way, quote, This verse dramatically pictures the fact that it is an answer to the prayers of the saints that God's judgments will fall on earth. How long, O oh God? And God says, I hear your prayer, now I act. And here's your first point. God's plan is to bring us into partnership, and the point of that partnership is prayer. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSalm. Dave will be back to continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe, and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Dave DeSalm Ministries is here to resource everyday pastors as they seek to equip 
everyday people to become everyday disciples. And one of the primary ways that we do that is through coaching. In the coaching relationship, pastors and leaders have the opportunity to receive individualized, practical guidance from Dave on the issues that they're facing in life and ministry. These one-on-one sessions offer a safe place to discuss some of the unique challenges you're facing with someone who's a bit further down the road of ministry. If you'd like to learn more about coaching, go to davedesomeministries.org or email us at info at davedesomeministries.org. Now, let's get back to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. God's plan is to bring us into partnership, and the point of that partnership is prayer. We can read through Revelation and look at all the images and the beasts and the numbers and all this kind of stuff and lose our ball in the weeds, but the fact of the matter is there are some great, great truths that we have to see, and one of them, friends, is right here in chapter 8, and it's this. Your prayers matter. There are an awful lot of us in this room who love Jesus and have walked with him for years who basically have this idea as it relates to prayer. Why should I make the time and take the effort to prayer? Because after all, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, isn't he? So why should I bother getting myself involved? And you may not like to admit it, but that's exactly what you think. If God's all-powerful, if God's omnipotent, if God is the sovereign God, why should I pray? Isn't he going to do what he's going to do anyway? Why should I get up extra early to pray? He's going to work anyway, isn't he? Why should I spend time in agony on my knees? Isn't God going to do what he wants to do anyway? No doubt, prayer is a mystery. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. But from cover to cover, friends, what we see is this. With the privilege of our adoption into God's family comes a very real inheritance. And part of our inheritance is to partner with God in his purposes being realized. That's a mind blower. Think of it. Your prayers. God takes your sonship or daughtership so seriously that when you pray, he takes that in consideration with his rulership of the whole universe. How that works together with sovereignty, I don't know. But look at these verses, one after another, come on the side screens. Call to me, he says to Jeremiah, and I'll answer you. Peter writes, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. From the lips of Jesus himself, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you'll receive James writes bluntly, you do not have because you do not ask God. He continues on, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Your prayers matter more than you could ever imagine. Because you pray, God will do things that he might not have done otherwise. He takes your adoption that seriously. Think of it. You can change history. A man named Walter Wink writes, History belongs to the intercessors, to those who believe and pray the future into being. History does not belong to those we think it belongs to. It does not belong to the humanly powerful or the wealthy or the rulers or the armies or the corporations or the global media empires. History belongs to those who intercede before God. So here's your point of application. 
am I willing to engage in the responsibility of intercession? In these last days, as mentioned in Revelation chapter 8, there are things that God does in answer to the prayers of his people. Are you willing to step into your adoption that fully? Are you willing to enter into your inheritance that completely? It doesn't have to wait till heaven. Now you have a chance to change history. And we have no clue how many people have come into this room and found Jesus Christ as Savior because some of you prayed. We have no clue how many marriages did not end up shipwrecked because some of you said, I'm going to pray. We have no clue how many kids turned around from rebellion, how many kids didn't go off the deep end because some grandparent, some small group, some group of parents said, we're not going to let these kids go. And they just rolled up their sleeves and they got in their knees. They just interceded. And God poured out his power. But it won't happen. It will not happen if we do not enter into our partnership. God so respects our position, he will not make us do it. Sometimes I think we're doing God a favor if we pray. I've got to pray. I'm doing Dave a favor. I'm doing the church a favor. I'm doing God a favor. And God's up there going, you have no idea what kind of power you have in your hands. Well, let's go on. Boy, I talk all the rest of the day on that one. Chapter 8, verses 6 to 8. Move on quickly. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel sounded his trumpet. And a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky. Just a point right here. When you see the word a third, a third, a third, probably what this is saying to us is that in the midst of God's judgment being poured out, there is a limit to it. There's a limit to it. He is not yet prepared to totally destroy everything. And the great question is, why is he limiting this? Why doesn't he just end it all now? Why only a third, a third, a third? And we're going to see the reason why in just a minute. Let me read you through verse 13 and I'll tell you. I mentioned verse 10. The name of that star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon and a third of the stars. So the third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. I watched and heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. Well, what's this all about? Boy, this is real hard stuff, believe me. Believe me. For example, we have stars falling, and the sun is a star. If one star hits the earth, the whole earth is obliterated. So it can't be a real star. There's obviously symbolism here. 
And chapter 9 goes on with those crazy locusts that we talked about, and a lot of debate about those. I mean, Hal Lindsey thinks that they're Cobra helicopters. you got all kinds of stuff on the locusts. You go down to the 200 million horsemen down in verse 16 of chapter 9, and there are some who set up scenarios about the, the, the red Chinese with their great army and 200 million troops on horseback and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of scenarios have been painted. And I don't know that we're going to get much further by going through chapter 9 discussing locusts and horsemen. The greater issue is, why is God doing this and why only a third? And I get a hint from that from 9.4. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. That's the operative phrase, only those people who did not have the seal on their foreheads. Now verse 20 and 21, still in chapter 9. The rest of mankind, they that were not killed by the plagues, still did not repent of the works of their hands and did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or talk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. As I read this chapter, I see something quite amazing, and that is God's mercy. And here's your point. God's desire is to bring about repentance, and sometimes pain is the only way to get people's attention. In the midst of all of this, I think, why not wipe them all out, God? Why not destroy the whole world? After all, they've mocked your people, they've killed Christians, why not wipe them all out? There is incredible mercy here that only a third, terrible pain, no doubt, is going to happen during this era. But it's to get people's attention. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, has this wonderful quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain has a purpose. What's tragic is how many people can have a brush with death, can have situations or circumstances that go haywire, can see the real painful price tag that sin exacts in their lives, and you'd think people would say, this is stupid. Why am I going to keep acting like this? This hurts. This isn't working. But they don't. They don't. They're just like the people here in chapter 9. They shake their fist at God in the midst of pain. We read these verses and think, how could people do that? How could people have all this stuff happen to them and still shake their fist in God's face? We do it all the time. God is often trying to get our attention through pain. So I want to ask you a practical question. It's this. Is there any pain in my life that God is trying to speak to me through? Don't live here in chapter 9. Come back to now. Is there any pain in your life that maybe God's trying to speak to you through? For example, maybe you've experienced chronic relational breakdowns. Your relational graveyard has new tombstones, it seems, every few months. That hurts. That's painful. Is God trying to say something to you about how you handle your relationships? Maybe your family life is in shambles, and that hurts. Is God trying to speak to you? Maybe you have ongoing financial problems, and that hurts. Is God trying to say something in the midst of that pain? Could it be the problem isn't with your friends or your family or your finances? The problem's with you. And God is bringing pain into your life to somehow get your attention. 
He loves you and he's willing to bring pain to you if that's what it's going to take to cause you to repent. The fact of the matter is, you destroy relationships. You just won't admit it, that it's your problem. The fact of the matter is, your parenting is destructive to your children, but you will not get help. The fact of the matter is, your finances are born of a selfishness and an irresponsibility that has deeper sin problems at its root. Let the pain cause you to ask God, what do you want to say to me? I want to listen. There's a third image I want you to see, and it's in chapter 10. It's about an angel who John sees, and the angel has a little scroll in his hand. We don't have time to read much of it to you, but don't confuse this with the bigger scroll back in chapter 5. This is a totally different Greek word. Pick it up in chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. What's the deal here with the scroll? Well, we're often talked in Scripture about feeding on God's Word. The image is used throughout the Bible. Jeremiah said, When your words came, I ate them, and they were my delight. Jesus said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by the Word of God. We talk about it today. We talk about devouring a book, right? I devoured that book. It means that became a part of me. I just ate it up. John is here talking about feeding on God's Word, and what he symbolizes here ties in with the point I want to make with you. Many times the Bible is so sweet, in fact, it's called in the Psalms, sweeter than honey, and there's much of God's Word that is so pleasant. But notice it turns sour on John. The point being made is there, is some, there are some things in God's Word that are not pleasant to have to eat. They're hard. That is to say, God's word is all truth, but it's not all easy or pleasant. And I want to make a point here because there are an awful lot of people who love the Bible, but they only love the part they like. They like the pleasant stuff. They like the wonderful promises. They don't like things about called dying to self, dealing with sin, coming to grips with their selfishness. They avoid the calls to serious discipleship. If you hope to feed on God's word faithfully, you're going to have to take the good stuff with the hard stuff. Listen, a diet of cheesecake and chocolate is not going to make you healthy. In heaven, maybe, but not now. And you're going to have to have the veggies as well as the desserts from the scriptures. Sometimes when you read this book, it is so sweet and the promises are so real and so wonderful. Embrace them joyfully. Sometimes, if you really come at it honestly, the Holy Spirit is going to nail you right between the eyes. What are you going to do with that? Will you still eat it? The question to ask, do I feed on God's word, obeying the hard commands as well as enjoying the happy promises? Does that characterize you? Would you be like John? You know what, God? I'm willing for the tough as well as the tender. 
Finally, we come to the two witnesses. Chapter 11, let's read the first 10 verses. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. Interestingly enough, there's that three and a half years again. And I will give power to my witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days. Interestingly enough, three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every tribe and people, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. A lot of debate about who the witnesses are. Now, they, they would represent two Old Testament figures, and you probably know who they are. Let me ask you, who was the Old Testament prophet who was able to shut up the skies from rain, but also call down fire from the sky? Who was that? Elijah. Who was the other Old Testament prophet that was able to actually turn water into blood and to shell down plagues? Who was that? Moses. So these two represent Moses and Elijah. Now, whether they are two literal people or, as some commentators say, they represent the people of God in general, we don't know. We could spend a lot of time in debate, but here's the, here's the point and then the application. As I read about these two, I wrote, God's call is for us to be courageous and faithful in our witness, not necessarily successful. What's interesting is you read this part here, you don't see anybody listening you don't see anyone coming to faith because of these faithful witnesses during these days. Rather, you see these people testifying to their faith in Christ and dying. We have a tendency, I think, many times to think that our witness should be successful. Confession time. How many of you have ever held back from witnessing, sharing your faith, because you were afraid of being rejected or being embarrassed? How many? Sure, I have. I, I was afraid of being rejected. I was afraid of being embarrassed. I was afraid. But the fact is, people who have stood up for Christ down through the years have been afraid, but stood up anyway. A fallen world does not want to listen. That is why we read here about the world gloating over the death of these. They don't want to listen. It's always intriguing that the word for witness in the New Testament, martus, is the word from which we get martyr. Witnesses, more times than not, ended up being martyrs. So here's your application as we close. Am I willing to take my stand for Christ even when it costs me? These two witnesses stood tall in tough times, and nobody listened, and they died. And I don't know that God's going to call you or me to die, but are you willing to stand tall even when it costs you? Well, we're done. Let me give you quickly the four points. And I just want you to look at each one of them here. And this is, 
this is what you just need to focus on. Which of these four is God going to call you especially to a council today? Am I willing to engage in the responsibility of intercession? History belongs to the intercessors. My privilege is to be a history changer. Will you do it? Is there any pain in my life that God is trying to speak to me through? Stop making excuses. Maybe he wants to speak to you about what you're doing in sin. Are you willing to investigate that? Third, do I feed on God's word? Do you really? Do you say, I'll I'll take the tough and the tender, the good stuff and the not so good stuff. Do you feed on God's word? Do you? And finally, am I willing to take my stand for Christ even when it costs me? Thank you so much for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSalm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.